Welcome to the M&A Cornercast, a podcast focused on the world of mergers and acquisitions. Helping inform the business owners and advisors we work with every day. I'm your host, Chuck Dallas. I have more than 10 years of experience with mergers and acquisitions, both from a corporate perspective and as an outside advisor. With us today is Managing Director and Owner of Cornerstone Business Services, Scott Bushke. How are you doing today, Scott? Living the dream another day. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. So, Scott, you're getting ready to celebrate 20 years. You've done a lot of transactions throughout your career, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of different buyers in these transactions. So, if you would, could you explain to our listeners the different types of buyers and how they fit within the merger and acquisition industry? Sure, Chuck. And I think, yeah, with 20 years, thank you for that. But I think all it means is you're getting old. But I will break it into maybe financial and strategic buyers and just go through some of the different more common buyers that you might see out there and what their playbook is or what kind of deals they typically look for. So we'll start on the financial side of things. So obviously, your first one is just an individual, a high net worth individual that's looking to buy a company. A lot of times, it'll be someone that's in the corporate role, at least middle management, if not higher, an executive role. And either is just sick of the corporate world or the corporate runaround or bureaucracy and has an entrepreneurial bug and wants to do things for themselves and run something that's their own where they control all the shots and live or die by their decisions versus someone else's within the organization. Sure. So most of those times, again, depending on the size of the company, if it's a smaller deal, you know, sub a million dollars, it may be not always, but it may be more of buying a job, take out the owner, put themselves in, and everything kind of continues on. And hopefully they can find ways to take the company to the next level. You know, that's one area. And you see those in the sub $500,000 enterprise values for sure. That's pretty much everybody in that category. And $500,000 to $1 million enterprise value, you see that there as well. The next big group that everybody hears about and talks about is PE or private equity firms. And those have been around for 20, 30 years now. And when I started 20 years ago, there was a few of them, but they were few and far between where that has become much more mainstream. And the number of uh, private equity firms has just ballooned up. And between private equity firms and family offices and the other strategic buyers out there, I mean, there is records amounts of cash out there chasing deals right now. It's over a trillion dollars of chasing deals, more money than it's ever been seen. But private equity has really been the main driver of that. There's committed funds and non-committed funds are more independent sponsored type plays. But the committed funds is where they've actually gone out either to high net worth individuals or institutional investors and said, hey, you know, we want to raise 100 million, a billion, $5 billion fund. And here's kind of our thesis. We're going to buy companies two to $10 million in EBIT in X industries. And we're basically going to raise the money. We're going to find the companies. We're going to acquire them. We're going to grow them and we're going to sell them and give the money back to our investors, typically around a 10-year time frame. So that's where when you see people that might hold a company for five years, plus or minus, that's why, because they have a finite amount of time that they can actually own the company because they have to sell the company to get those returns for their investors. So the positive of a committed fund is that you know the capital's there. They've raised the capital. So if they agree to do the deal, they don't have to go out and and get investors or sell anybody else on the idea of what they like about your company. They can do the deal. The money's already committed in their fund. 
The downside for some folks is it's probably going to be a four, five, six, seven year play, depending on where they're at in their cycle, that they will uh, be selling that company and exiting out of it and selling to someone else. So there's good and bad with that. But for your playbook, that makes sense. You want to make sure that it's the best chance to close. Well, then a committed fund might be where you want to go. Obviously, an independent sponsor or family office, a lot of times they differentiate themselves by calling patient capital. They don't have committed funds, which is the downside that they have to go out and raise the money. But the better ones will give you references of their investors and the investors are on board and they're lined up and they want to invest in deals. They don't have to go and try to find them after the words. They already trust the people running the fund and uh, are just waiting for the deals to come in on a one-off deal basis. They'll invest if they like the deal or they'll take a pass. Family offices, again, similar they can control how long they, they could hold it forever. You know, they don't have to give it back. It's a family office, which is a high net worth family, a couple hundred million typically at minimum that have someone there that are running their family office and investing in a different fund. So the nice thing with them is that they have what we call, like we said, patient capital that they might never sell a company or it could be 10 or 20 years from now that they sell the company. There's no mandate that they have to sell within a certain time frame. So those are some of the bigger buyer groups and their search funds out there that started back with Stanford in the mid mid to late 80s where they get really smart MBA students and, and backed by alumni of the different universities potentially or people that they know, friends and family, and they go out and they just want to buy one company. You know, they're looking to buy one company and actually move there and run the company and then build it up and sell it for a good return for themselves and their investors. So those are kind of the main financial buyers per se. And many times we work with private equity firms that have committed funds and more of those independent sponsors that don't have committed funds and also family offices are, are probably the three groups that we see the most in the Lobino market. And like every industry, there's a lot of really good players out there, really good people that will help you have the playbook, understand your vision, have the similar culture and truly help you grow the company. And like any industry, there's a lot of bad characters out there where they will tell you what you want to hear, promise a lot of things, and then uh, retrade the deal at the 11th hour or buy the company. And then it's a completely different game after that of what they said it was going to be like. So sure. that's our you know, that's our job as many advisors is to really help you screen out the good players, know what to ask for, know to check references and how to do that and make sure that we can truly get to the core of who they are, and what their ethos is as a company or as a firm. I think, Scott, you mentioned it earlier, the amount of money that's out there to be invested by these folks is just outstanding, isn't it? It is. I mean, if you look at private equity info or PI, uh, which is one of the tools that we use, it's one of the best tools that really have captured what private equity firms are looking for. I think there's over 4,000 private equity firms in their system and over like 95,000 companies that all those private equity firms own. So it's just an ungodly amount of firms and amount of money. And you think about these private equity firms, it's not like a company where, hey, this year we're looking to grow and then we're going to maybe grow organically the next two years, whatever it might be. These people get up every single day looking to buy companies. That's their only job is to find companies and buy companies and grow companies and then exit those companies. It's just a lot of money chasing deals out there right now. And through COVID, we're seeing it's very interesting. The larger companies you know, that have proven that they're COVID resistant per se, and those companies are going for some really strong multiples. In fact, some of these multiples are probably stronger during COVID than uh, pre-COVID. They would have been pre-COVID just because so many sellers are out of the marketplace right now. And there's just so many buyers chasing deals. So we had a record amount of written offers or indications of interest on this last deal that we took to market with $4 million in EBIT. We had 28 written indications of interest, the most we've ever had in, in our almost 20-year history. So it's different than the other recessions where volume came down and also the values came down. But in this recession, like in 2020, nothing seems to be normal anymore. You know, where the volumes have come down, but deals are still getting done. And, and good companies that are proven with good management teams and have got through the recession and grown right through COVID, uh, 
and our nest, you know, necessary businesses, those are, are really demanding some high multiples just because of the kind of econ 101 supply and demand. Sure. And then if we flip to the strategic side of things, so that could be a private company, could be a public company, and it also could be a private equity firm or family office that owns a business. And now they're looking to do an add-on or buy other companies that are synergistic with that company. So with strategic buyers, they typically can pay more if they choose to because there's synergies where maybe there is some growth synergies where you know they've got a great distribution uh, system or sales team and I've got a great product. And now they take my product, put it into their distribution system and overnight expand sales significantly. Sometimes there's also cost cutting services. But a lot of times the groups that we're talking to are looking to truly grow the business and grow value versus just trying to cut costs to show that the, the bottom line is stronger than it was before. But those buyers, there's some reason where one plus one should equal three. You know, Whether it's a market share play where, hey, I'm doing business in Wisconsin and now I want to get into Illinois, I can either start up my own company and grow from scratch and hope that I can kind of open up a business and make it work, or I can just go down there and buy one of the market leaders and own that market share right. overnight. And whether it's public companies, same thing, you can usually get sometimes a lift there because the price per, you know, the earnings per share or the kind of multiple that they're trading at is much higher than what private companies trade for. So they get that immediate arbitrage there of whatever they buy the company for to what their price per share is. And usually you can get some very good values out of strategic companies, or, you know, public or private, if they're looking to get into your space. So, you know, with the strategic side, again, you might get the most value for those companies. But legacy, if you want to keep your name on the door, that might not be there two or three years down the road. Or culture, you know, their culture might be different than your culture, not good, bad, right or wrong, just different. And does that make a difference to you or not? Are they going to protect the employees? In some cases, like I talked about earlier, what they're buying is not just product and service, but also the trained employees, the good human talent, because it's hard to find good people these days, even with unemployment being higher than it was a year ago. Still, that's probably the number one concern I hear from business owners that they can't grow the way they said the work's there, the business is there. I just can't find the good people to continue to enhance our business sales. So to be able to buy companies and keep those people on board, one way that people are growing by going through acquisition and getting those good people. You know, so there's pros and cons with everybody. You know, you get higher values, you might lose a little bit of culture, might lose a few employees through some cost cutting measures of duplicate costs or services or roles. But again, I, I would really guard against saying that there's a one size fits all or just because we talk in generalities here, that doesn't mean that, oh, geez, I should never go down a strategic because there's always different players out there looking for different ways. And, you know, the more competitive it is, sometimes they have to, uh, be more flexible in order to stand out from the crowd. So if you want something, talk to your MA advisor about, you know, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what's important to me. We've got a survey that you can fill out, you know, just reach out to us. We can send you the survey. It's a 10 question survey of really helping reflect on what's the most important to you. As we learn what's important to you, we can help guide you to which types of buyers we think would make the most sense for, you know, for what you're looking for, because all buyers aren't the same. And even in, in each category, they're not all the same, but definitely a committed fund is different than a non-committed P fund or a financial buyer is different than a strategic buyer. There's just pros and cons to each of them. None right or wrong. It's just what's most important to you. So this is just a little bit of an overview of of some of the different pros and cons. I'll be coming out with a book in the first quarter of 2021 that will dive into this much more along with a lot of other exit planning advice and just getting you preparing your company and getting it ready. But I wanted to share uh, a couple thoughts with you today, Chuck. Scott, thank you for that. You know, one of the things, and I know you've got a couple of stories on this, where a seller will think, well, you know, why don't I just sell to one of my competitors? And they don't take the proper steps that you would with an M&A firm. And before you know it, they've robbed all your detail. They know who your customers are and you're out of business. And it just makes sense in what you're visiting with here. 
using the right individuals to really get it sold, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're right. It's so funny how you said that, that, uh, well, I'll just call my competitor on the street and I'll cut a deal and then I'll bring my CPA in to, to help finish it off and my, and my attorney that set up my LLC. And, you know, we'll talk in another session about just having the right deal team around you and just how it makes a world of difference. But yeah, calling the competitor down the street is typically the riskiest group to call. And sometimes we don't even call that group at all. And if we do, we do it at the very end. Uh, but yeah, if you start with just call to one potential buyer and you're doing one-off negotiations and it's with competitors, Number one, you're absolutely going to leave money on the table without a doubt. And number two, it's so risky because if they don't come up with a value that you think makes sense, you've just given them a bunch of information, you know, margin, revenues, and maybe even customers. You know, I've, I've seen everything, you know, basically put everything on the table. And then this competitor comes in with a lowball offer or says, nah, you know, I've really thought about this. And I'm just going to continue on. Well, yeah, they're going to continue on. But now they're going to continue on with an unfair advantage over you and your company. And they can start picking off your customers one by one, knowing you know, what the margins is or what your secret sauce is or whatever else it might be. It's amazing, but it's not because again, as a seller, you get one chance to do this right. And you're only going to do this once in your life. And most of these entrepreneurs go, Hey, I know my business better than anybody else. And you absolutely do. But selling your business and knowing your business are two very, very different skill sets to have your largest financial transaction of your life to do it yourself with something you've never done before. The Masters were just on, you know, that's like going out and playing scratch golf and thinking, you're, you know, or better and think you're going to win the Masters the first time you swing a golf club. It's just not going to happen. You're probably not going to make the cut. So get the team around you that have been doing it for a long time and, you know, a lot, a lot of good things will happen. Uh, great. Thank you for your input and insight, Scott. As normal, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this on who to be looking for to buy some of the businesses that are out there. So again, folks, we've had Scott Bushke, the Managing Director and Owner of Cornerstone Business Services with us today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Chuck. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the M&A CornerCast. Hopefully we gave you some insight into the world of mergers and acquisitions. We'll see you back again next Thursday with a brand new episode.